Greetings and welcome to Interlinked. It is the podcast series under the Center for New Economic Studies, OP Jindal Global University. Interlinked seeks to break down barriers between various social, political and economic issues as well as to have meaningful dialogues about their intersections. I am Ishani Sharma, a third year international relations student and a research analyst at the Center. We are excited to launch a new series in collaboration with the newly founded Jindal Global Center for G20 Studies, in which we will conduct a series of podcasts with practitioners, academics and scholars on topics related to the G20 Summit. We couldn't have found a better inaugural guest for the series than Dr. Mohan Kumar himself, who is the Center's director. Dr. Mohan Kumar has had a distinguished 36-year-long career in the Indian Foreign Services, culminating in his appointment as India's ambassador to France in Paris. Under his leadership, the Indo-French strategic cooperation was strengthened and further consolidated in areas such as military, space, smart cities and investment. From June 2018, Ambassador Mohan Kumar has also served as the Chairman of the Research and Information System for Developing Countries and Mohan, uh, Dr. Mohan Kumar is also the author of the book WTO Negotiation Dynamics and Insider's Account. Thank you for joining us today, Professor. Alright, so uh, we know that the G20 has steadily evolved as a vital multilateral forum on the global stage. Um, it, it began in 2008 as an agency that aimed at global economic management, but now it has broadened its mandate to address today's pressing issues. So beginning with how India has taken over the G20 presidency for the year, how do you think this would help India as a country project itself as a global leader in the international arena? Uh, first, um, thank you very much, Ishani, for having me. And it's, uh, it's a great pleasure to actually participate in the broadcast. And as you rightly said, I've just been appointed as the inaugural director of the Jindal Global Center of G20 Studies. So it's, it's uh, really important that uh, the kind of questions that you're posing to me, they're so relevant for India's presidency. So once again, pleasure to be on your podcast. No, I think that's a great uh, question to begin with uh, in terms of how India can um, use the presidency, if you like. I think there are a couple of things India can do, and I think India has made no secret of it. First, I think India wishes to be the voice of the global south. I think for a long time we have tried our best to represent the global south, but I thought it was a master stroke by both the government, the prime minister and the external affairs minister that they should have a virtual meeting a couple of months ago with something like 120 odd countries of the global south. And this was a three day virtual meeting in which heads of state, heads of government, external affairs ministers and finance ministers expressed themselves as to what they expect the Indian presidency to achieve. I think this was important because rather than India assume that it's going to be the voice of the global south, this gives India legitimacy because then India has sought inputs, received inputs, and then it will process those inputs and be the voice of the global south at the important meetings scheduled from now, which will obviously culminate in the G20 summit in September in Delhi. So that's the first thing that India will seek to do. In doing this, 
I don't want to underplay the challenge because uh, India pretty much will have to be the bridge between the G7 countries, which are the developed countries and the rest. And so we will try to do that role, which I think is important. I think the Prime Minister made it clear that G20 leadership assumed by India will not just be for the G20 countries, but also for those outside who don't have an opportunity to have their voice heard, either in the UN Security Council or the G20. So I think this is a, this is a good move, as I, I like to call it a masterstroke. I thought it was an excellent move by the government to try and get inputs. The second thing that India will seek to do is to shape the global agenda. And because India is not part uh, of the UN Security Council on a permanent basis, uh, we have an opportunity to do this in the G20 context. And while the presidency has come to us by rotation, it is nevertheless a great opportunity because India is preceded by Indonesia and followed by Brazil and then South Africa. So you've got these four countries, Indonesia, India, Brazil, South Africa, which are important countries. And certainly Brazil, India have made no secret of their ambition to be permanent members of the Security Council. These are also four important countries of the Global South. So actually what India will try to do is take the baton from Indonesia and try to pass on to Brazil an agenda which will reflect India's priorities. One of the objectives, Ishani, of India's foreign policy, which I'm sure you're aware, is for India to transition from being a swing power to a leading power. Now, we are a long way from that, and I don't want to say that we are a leading power today, but one of the things we will try... One of the ways in which India can become a leading power is by being a rule shaper rather than a rule taker. You know, you take the rules given to you. So I think that would be the second attempt. Lastly, I think India would like to have a successful summit. And there I think we can talk about it if you like, but I will be dishonest if I did not also talk about the challenges which have already become apparent in both the finance minister and the central bank governor's meeting, followed by the foreign minister's meeting. It's very obvious that Russia, China have dissociated themselves from the paragraph on Ukraine, which was accepted, by the way, in Bali in November of last year. So, but Ukraine is an issue that will evolve. And you know that the Chinese president is currently in Moscow. He's meeting with the President Putin. They have put forward a plan. I'm not saying the plan will work, but there are lots of things which are likely to happen between now and September when the summit happens in Delhi. But that's the last point I'd like to make. It is an issue that India will have to monitor very carefully and take it into account when we try and fashion the summit declaration. So hopefully we will get that right. But those basically are the points. And I think India's presidency is both interesting, challenging, ambitious. We'll see. But I think exciting times. Definitely, Professor. Uh, you mentioned how India wants to be the voice of the Global South. And one of the major problems that's facing the Global South is in terms of the rights of the workers that are often exploited. 
So moving on to that, uh, talking about labor rights, which is an integral part of the objectives that the G20 countries must focus on. And given that the G20 countries, they collectively lost approximately 16 million full-time jobs in 2022 because of the pandemic and many other factors. Where do you think the G20 as a forum comes into play here? Um, in such a precarious global financial scenario, how can the G20 promote the safeguarding of labor rights? That's an excellent question as well. Now, I want to begin by saying that one of the priorities of India is inclusive economic growth. And you know what uh, inclusive economic growth is all about, which means that we are not just going to be focused on the headline GDP numbers and say that we have grown by 8%, we've grown by 9%. And you may as well ask me, what is the use of 9% if poverty is going to increase, if the inequality is going to increase. So I think by emphasizing inclusive economic growth, I think India, in my view, has got it right because I think they're trying to say that it's not just the GDP and the economic growth, but how economic wealth and income is distributed. So I think that is an important aspect that India has emphasized. I want to um, tell your listeners, um, if they don't already know, that there is a G20 employment working group which is a very, very important group, which has been working from 2014 onwards. It was established before 2014 as just a task force for employment. But since 2014, it is now a permanent working group. So the G20 is acutely conscious of the fact that you can have as much growth as you want, but if you don't have jobs, then you are in trouble. Two things I think uh, are important, and I think I draw the attention of your listeners to the, to the, to the so-called secretariat of the G20. G20 doesn't have a permanent secretariat, but everybody knows that OECD acts as a secretariat and makes papers. And, but these, the, the two OECD papers worth looking at, one is uh, the global skill gap mapping that is required. And the employment working group of the G20 is focusing on the global skill gap mapping, which means essentially you will identify the requirements of workforce and see how you can train people to meet those. You know, interestingly, you will have lots of unemployment in many countries, but also among high skills, the, there is a shortage of high skills. This is uh, uh, an irony, if you like. On the one hand, you don't have enough jobs for everybody, especially in lower income countries. And then you have in some countries, really, there is a shortage of labor. And so this is the global skill gap mapping that is required. And I would like your listeners to take a look at it. The other thing we have to simply get right, and I think India has emphasized that as part of its participation in the employment working group of the G20, as I said, is the gig platform economy. I mean, what I roughly call Zomato economy, but you know what I'm saying. The, the gig platform economy is just a reality in our countries. I'm not saying it's ideal, but it's a reality. So when you talk of gig platform, you need to ask questions like the permanency of the employment. What about social protection? What about social security for them? Those issues are being discussed in the working group. And I hope um, this working group will make its presentation to the summit in September in Delhi. 
थैंक यू प्रोफेसर मूविंग ऑन टू टेकिंग द एग्जाम्पल ऑफ हाउ द रशिया यूक्रेन वॉर इट डेमोन्स्ट्रेटेड द अक्यूट फ्रैजिलिटी ऑफ द ग्लोबल फूड सप्लाई चेन एस्पेशली मैट कम्स टू वीट मैनी कंट्रीज इन द ग्लोबल साउथ और इवन इन आफ्रीका दे वोर ग्रेवली इम्पैक्टेड बिकॉज ऑफ शॉर्टेज ऑफ वीट सप्लाई सो द नेसेसिटी ऑफ अ स्ट्रॉन्ग एग्रीकल्चरल वैल्यू चेन हैज बिन अंडरस्कोर्ड in such a setting how can the g20 again led by india work to boost the agricultural value chain particularly in third world countries so i take you back to the point i made earlier which is the uh, voice of the global south summit that india had and i'm happy you raised this issue of uh, the food insecurity as i say because one of the consistent points made throughout the three day meeting with 125 odd countries of the global south was precisely food insecurity caused and exacerbated as you say by the russia ukraine war so um uh, i'm particularly uh, relieved to note that the black sea initiative which is a black sea food grain initiative has been extended for a period of 120 days one of the things i would urge if i was advising the g20 i would advise them to make this permanent because you know it makes no sense to really do this on a piecemeal basis so it's good that it has been extended it was expiring on the 18th of march it has been extended for a period of 120 days but i think the g20 should make this permanent because um the 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 sheer injustice of low income countries for example in africa suffering because of the war in ukraine makes no sense i mean they have had nothing to do with the war in ukraine and yet because ukraine russia are responsible for 40% of wheat exports as you know and i'm not even this is customary to talk of the three f's actually you got food you got fertilizer you got fuel all three are problems caused by the or exacerbated by the war in ukraine but the fact that it is affecting countries which have had nothing to do with the war in ukraine is i think very very unfair so i hope uh, uh, the g20 will be able to address that but more broadly i would you know i'm using my wto experience and i don't know if your listeners know the background but for example in the wto the world trade organization agriculture agreement is one of the most unfair agreements of the world it is completely favored united states and european union which have subsidized in the past their farmers to the extent of actually at one time 10 years ago 1 billion dollars a day 365 billion dollars a year was the subsidies given by us and eu for their farmers suddenly india finds itself in a situation where because we have a public sec- food security distribution system and we don't have a social security because the pradhan mantri garib kalyan yojana but we distribute as you know 1 kilo of lentils and 5 kilos as per the national food security act of india and the wto says in the areas of sugar and rice india is about to flout wto rules because uh, i remember participating in the uruguay round negotiation i wasn't india's negotiator in agriculture but i was tangentially involved unfortunately we made the mistake of agreeing in 1986 87 in the gat before it became wto in the uruguay round that once you exceed the value of subsidies for a particular agricultural commodity which exceeds 10% of the value of production for that year then you are in trouble 
and India has exceeded that in sugar and rice. So fortunately, we have a moratorium on dispute settlement, which we worked out. So we are okay for the time being. But I think uh, I would uh, love it if the G20 can throw its weight behind this issue and ask WTO to come up with a fairer solution. The, the, the SDG goal of no hunger and food security is vital. You can't allow a trade agreement to trump something like this SDG goal. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this is completely unfair. I think the G20 should do this, and I hope Indian negotiators will be able to do this. There may be opposition from some G7 countries. I don't, uh, I would be surprised if that didn't happen. But I think there is such a thing as India's presidency. We've got the voice of the global south. I think we should push for these issues so that, uh, as you rightly say, food security is just too important to be left to the vagaries of mercantilist rules. You know what I'm saying? It, it is different because food is, you can't allow food, food to be exchanged the way you exchange um, shirts and, uh, you know, shoes and watches and perfumes. I mean, that's ridiculous. It's just completely different. And uh, therefore, uh, it's also true that the Russian war in Ukraine has brought home um, the brutal fact that each country will now have to be careful about food security. We are lucky in India that we are able to feed our population. I mean, I, I always keep telling people the fact that we have vaccinated most of our people, the fact that we are not out with a begging bowl after the Russian war in Ukraine. I mean, these, is, these are no mean achievements. I don't, I don't think you should just dismiss them. I mean, these are significant. But largely, uh, here is an example, Ishani, where I think India will have to speak for the global south. Not so much for itself, because we are okay. But I think we need to speak for those countries in Africa and other uh, low-income countries which have a problem. Uh, thank you, Professor. Uh, moving on to another segment that's really important. Uh, for example, in the Indian economy, we see how the micro, small and medium, medium enterprises, also known as MSMEs, they have a significant impact and it is evidenced by the fact that they contribute nearly 30% of the country's GDP and nearly 50% of its exports. So how can the G20 ensure their full integration into the global value chain? So um, um, uh, it, it, it will interest you to know that um, India has made it a point to say that SMEs are important because uh, you rightly quoted the figures of its contribution to national GDP, which is very significant. In India, as you know, we're really a country of SMEs at the end of the day. There is only so much formal employment that we are speaking of. A lot of it is in the informal sector. I believe uh, three things are important. And I think India will push for those and try and see how G20 can contribute, even indirectly. One, uh, as you know, the G20 has two tracks. One is a finance track and one is a Sherpa development track. We will forget about the Sherpa development track. We will talk of the finance track in this context. And one of the key impediments, obstacles that SMEs face is finance. So this is going to be central. If you ask any small, medium um, enterprise, the fundamental problem that they face is finance. Where do you get finance? How do you get finance? What are the terms in which you get finance? What is the collateral you are required in order to get or have access to it? Those are critical issues. And again, I would um, 
draw the attention of your listeners to the OECD uh, paper on this issue. OECD has been making papers on SMEs for a very long time. And they have, I think it's three issues have been identified. One, as I said, is finance. Microfinance is important. And India, Mudra, for example, Indian government has got many schemes, but I think we need more of those. Because I go back to what uh, the former late president Abdul Kalam said, we, in India, we just have to stop being job seekers and become really job creators. That's the only way it's going to work. We're not going to be able to create millions and millions of jobs for everybody. So I think SME finance is important. The second, uh, um, shall we say, challenge, I don't want to say impediment. Finance is certainly an impediment. The second challenge, I would say, is the digitalization for SMEs. Um, it's a, it's a catch-22, if you like. SMEs cannot stay away from digitization. It would, be, it would be naive and stupid if they did. Because when everybody else is digitizing Amazon, the impact of Amazon is just so huge. So you cannot not digitalize. And yet, if you do digitalize, then you have to be ready to take on the world, take on the big players and so on. So it's a catch-22. I think the answer is to really embrace technology, if you like, because you can't really stay away from it. But this takes you to two important issues, which is particularly applicable to the SMEs. One is the digital divide. What if you're an SME in a rural area? or an area where internet access is not great. In India, I'm talking about India, but obviously when I talk of India, it also is applicable for a lot of low-income countries, right? So if you are in an area where there is no digital penetration or the speed of internet, then you have a problem. The second problem is the sheer digital infrastructure. You need money to get the latest laptops and the latest fiber optic cables, connections and so on. So both these issues have to be addressed. Otherwise, I do not see the small, medium enterprises of India flourishing. I mean, they may exist, but I think what we want, and I'm sure that's what you meant when you asked me the question, that you want these enterprises to flourish and really grow so that they provide employment. So I think the second issue of digitalization is important. The last issue, which is related and it is a challenge as well, is um, one of the lowest participation of SMEs and global value chains is in India. If you take a typical firm, small, medium enterprises in Finland or Sweden or even in ASEAN, their participation in global value chains or at least regional value chains, if not global, let me not try to say global, regional, that is, is really very low in India. So we need to make an effort to ensure that these small, medium enterprises get linked to regional value chains. How will they do that? So they do that. For example, India now has got a production linked incentive scheme. You know that in the cases of electronics, for example, the one and let's say Samsung has got this factory in Greater Noida, for example. Right. And they need parts. Not everything is going to be made in one place. That is where I think small, medium enterprises must hook on to this particular factory in Greater Noida, which can then become a hub because the government of India's intention is not just to make mobile phones for the Indian market. They want to make it for the neighborhood as well, the region at least, if not Europe. 
I'm talking Bangladesh, Nepal, Sri Lanka. So if the small medium enterprises which make critical parts for a mobile phone, if they can hook on or tie themselves to this big factory wherever it is, I think that's one way in which they can pick, hopefully they become part of regional value chains, if not global. But I think the extent to which they embrace technology, the extent to which they are competitive, the extent to which they get government support at the end of the day. You cannot expect a small medium entrepreneur to just come up one fine day and exist on its own. So I think that is where can you create an ecosystem which is favorable for the growth and development of SMEs? That's the question. And if we can get some valuable lessons from other G20 countries, that'll be great because there are ASEAN countries there which may have done better. So I think G20, if nothing else, in this area, we should exchange the best practices and share experiences so that India can benefit. Uh, thank you, Professor. This brings me to my last question. Um, it, this question would be based on G20 as a multilateral institution in itself. Um, you can see there's an observable rise in plurilateral platforms these days and they are being utilized as forums for debates and discussions, for example, the Quad or the AUKUS. And often this is cited as a manifestation of the decline of multilateralism. So where does the G20, especially under India's presidency, stand in facilitating dialogue and fostering efficient action by the member countries and in a sense, reviving multilateralism? That's uh, an interesting question, actually, because there are different ways of approaching these questions, different angles. I'll begin with the, the at least the official version and then I'll give you my personal take on this issue. The official version is that the Indian government has made reforming multilateralism as a key priority in the G20 agenda. When India says reforming multilateralism, no prizes for guessing what we have in mind. We, we believe the current UN Security Council is awfully out of date. It does not reflect contemporary power realities. India simply has to be there. How can you ignore a country of 1.4 billion? They're already the largest country in the world or will be very soon. So it, that's one way to go. And one way of reforming multilateralism is that you reform the UN Security Council. A lot of other things will follow. So this is one, one way to go. G20 is interesting because the definition of multilateralism is such that you can actually consider it both multilateral and plurilateral. Um, if you take a very strict definition of multilateralism, G20 may not qualify, UN will. But on the other hand, if you say that all continents have to be represented, then the G20 could be considered a multilateral forum. In many ways, my personal assessment is that one of the reasons why India is investing so heavily in the G20 is precisely because the UN Security Council has been abysmal in performing. I mean, I would have thought that the war in Ukraine should have been dealt with by the UN Security. You, 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 you created the UN Security Council for war and peace. That's their primary responsibility, which they have not been able to discharge. And it's interesting for me that the G20 to some extent has been constrained to deal with the war in Ukraine, even while adding that this is not the forum to resolve security issues. They keep saying that. They have a paragraph on Ukraine and 
And they have a paragraph on Ukraine because they openly say this is because it has a profound impact on economic issues. The G20's primary mandate, as you know, is economic. So they keep saying that. But for me, the way India plays G20 or India uses its presidency will be important because G20 itself, for me, is at a crossroads. Um, I can see different interests at play. One of the uh, things that the G20 has started doing, and I'm not a huge fan of it, is you have a paragraph and then you have an asterisk which says one country dissociated it. So you remember, I don't know if you remember, there was a paragraph 33 last year at Bali, which was about debt relief for countries and terribly important for low-income countries and so on. And it had an asterisk and it said, Everybody agreed to this paragraph, one country dissociated it, so no prizes for guessing it was China which dissociated itself on debt relief and the debt service suspension initiative of the G20. If you start doing that, it is my personal view that the cumulative impact of the G20 statement suffers. It's good to say the G20 countries were um, you know, had a consensus on this particular paragraph. That means something because all continents, uh, you know, you know the thing about G20, right? 80% of GDP or more, 60% uh, of the population, 70% of world trade, the rest, it's, it's got real gravitas is what I'm saying. So I would, I would much rather that we try and focus on issues on which we can say G20 agreed. But that is where I think India has a lot of work to do because I think the war in Ukraine right now is such a, um, shall we say, an issue that causes such dissensions within the G20 that we will have to take it uh, carefully. But uh, having said that, I, I think the G20 has by and large for me risen to the occasion as compared to the UNSC at least. Uh, admittedly, the bar is not very high, but still I think the, the G20 is too important a forum. And um, I think, like I said, I go back to the first statement I made and that will be my concluding remark, which is that uh, it is uh, entirely fortuitous that you've got Indonesia followed by India and then Brazil and South Africa. I think that's good. It it's kind of gives you um, uh, this feeling that uh, the developing countries or countries of the global south own this forum and if they can do something collectively i think it'll be it'll be great uh, thank you professor this concludes an incredibly insightful and thought-provoking conversation i feel this was an excellent start to the collaboration between interlink and the center for g20 studies uh, we were able to briefly touch on if not address most of the major concerns con confronting the g20 countries today I would want to encourage all our listeners to stay tuned for the following episodes of the series in which we will go deeper into the issues highlighted today. I wholeheartedly thank you for joining us today, Professor, and I'm confident that our listeners gain some valuable knowledge from this talk. Thank you for having me.